0: Because I've walked through it, like I know those dark moments. Like that moment when I abandoned myself, when I looked around at every person in my life and knew that they needed me to be something that isn't who I am. In that moment, I, you really are faced with, like, then what's the point of being here? If I can't be me, do I even want to be?
1: Welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. My guest today is Reverend Erica Allison, a queer interfaith minister. She's the author of the memoir Gay the Pray Away healing your life, love, and relationships from the harms of LGBT conversion therapy. We spoke about her journey of healing after being sent to conversion therapy as a teenager in Texas, the coping strategies she developed after experiencing the trauma of identity harm, how a search for her mother's approval led to a string of serially monogamous relationships, how she eventually came to become an interfaith minister, and her current mission to empower the queer community through spiritual liberation. Erica, you were born in Miami Beach, but then you moved to Texas between Dallas and Fort Worth when you were a small child. Can you talk to me about growing up in Texas? What was that like?
0: Yeah. And you know, there's kind of a funny story with that. So my parents were total hippies at the time that I was born. My dad was in the recording business. I can say this now because he's, you know, old and retired and his career doesn't matter. He was a total druggie. Like they were into all kinds of stuff. And they made this decision. My mom basically made the decision that now that they had a kid, now that they had responsibility in their life, They didn't want to raise me in an environment like that. They really needed to get me into a nice, wholesome, safe place, which is so I find it so funny because obviously, as the story is going to progress, here we go into Texas. We go into conservative Texas, and I end up having this very conservative childhood and coming out as a gay person wishing like, why couldn't we have grown up in Miami? It would have been so much easier for me. Why did you guys have to change?
1: (laughs) Oh, that's amazing. So out of your two parents, which one was more sort of like by the book Christian?
0: Oh, my mom, for sure. Yeah, when they moved to Texas, I think the church was a real uh, source of support for them. And so, you know, they didn't know anyone. They didn't have any friends. They were building a new community and they had a new baby and no jobs. And so I think the church really was kind of that first place that took them in and helped them feel, you know, got them, helped them with support and whatever. That became their community very early on. And then that was basically my upbringing. I mean, growing up in Texas in the suburb where I grew up, I joke about this in my book, you know, it isn't which, you know, it isn't it isn't if you go to church, it's which church do you go to, right? Like that's the kind of community that I grew up in. So it was a lot of sports and sports and church.
1: What was your relationship like uh, with regards to the church? Like how did you feel with regards to spirituality and Jesus?
0: Yeah, well, growing up, it was so fun. I mean, that's where all my friends were. It was just part of our life. I didn't know any anything else. It was a fun thing we did on the weekends and, you know, all the church youth groups were I always found them really engaging and creative, and we did a lot of drama and a lot of plays. I was that kid who I loved memorizing things, and so it was really fun for me to go to church because I felt like I had the whole thing memorized, and I didn't even need the— like, the people would be reading their bulletins, and I'd be like, I don't need that. I know I know all the words to this whole thing. There were a lot of rewarding pieces for me about growing up in that way and knowing, you know, having the community and knowing them all and having kind of all of these Sunday school teachers and other adults who— you know, I got to to develop relationships with and have mentorship support from.
1: And how about your relationship with God and spirituality?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, looking back on that, I don't really know. I mean, my relationship, my spiritual life has developed and blossomed so much that it's hard for me to even look back at that time and, like, judge if I even had a relationship at that time. Like, I definitely did what they wanted me to do. Like, we read the Bible study stuff and, um, you know, we sang the songs and we prayed and all of that. But did I actually have a relationship? I don't know. I mean, maybe in the way that I knew to at that time. Um, it felt it felt real to me. We definitely prayed a lot as a family. Like we'd say grace before meals and we would pray before bed, like all of those typical things that a church going family did. But I don't have any strong memories of like a mystical like i have adult mystical experiences with the divine that i could talk about but as a child like i don't have any memories of like oh my gosh and then i felt god's presence in this environment like i don't have though i don't have any strong memories like that
1: at what age did you feel like hey i might be gay growing up in a church oriented community did you have anyone to talk to about those feelings
0: zero like this is the thing like i was i was showing signs of being gay Really early on, I mean, like I think I had a crush on my fifth grade teacher, Uh, and so, and then it just continued from there. Like by the time I was in eighth or ninth grade, like I preferred to hang out with my coach at lunch than even to hang out with the kids in my class. Like I got a I got a special pass that would allow me to leave the cafeteria as soon as I finished eating and go hang out with my coach, who was a closeted dyke, (laughs) because I I had more of an affinity for her than I even did for all of these classmates. So. All the signs were there, but the issue was no one was out in our community. It doesn't mean no one was gay. Like, I like to make that distinction. Definitely a lot of people were gay or lesbian, but they were all closeted. They wouldn't speak about it. They were hiding it. A few coaches that I had were actually married to men to try to really hide their sexuality. And the other ones who were a little braver— you know, they had the quote roommate, but nobody spoke about having a relationship. So as far as I knew, as this little sheltered kid from Texas, I didn't even know what gay was. And if any any reference to it was kind of like, Oh, yeah, those are those weird people in San Francisco. Now, as I got closer, like as I got into high school, this is when like, it's one of those moments, I still remember the moment I realized I was gay, it had to be presented to me in a way that I could I was so naive that even though I had friends who were older than me, who had pretty much acknowledged the fact that they were gay, I still needed them to like break it down for me and say, no, you don't understand. We're not just friends. We are in love with each other. And and my jaw was on the floor. I'm like, what do you mean? How is that possible? And then all of a sudden it was like just a lightning bolt. Like, oh my gosh, of course. And then everything in my life before that made so much sense. That moment, it was almost like the sky opened up and the angelic choirs were singing. And it was like, this is who you are. You didn't know it, but here you are.
1: So how much time elapsed between that sort of aha moment and the time where you came out to your parents?
0: It was a couple years. It was like three years. So it was my sophomore year of high school where I was finally able to, you know, understand that this was an option for me based on a few of the older students who already knew this about themselves. So that was like my sophomore year. So I was right around 16. Like I, I can still remember around the time I was starting to drive was also around the time I had my first girlfriend those two things were very connected. And then it really wasn't until my senior year of high school and the second half of my senior year. So after I was 18, that my parents finally discovered this about me, I was pretty much in hiding, as were all of us, like any of us who were gay, we're all pretty much in hiding from our parents throughout all of high school.
1: Can you walk me a little bit through like that, that coming out story with with the parents and, and how that led to the conversion therapy that you were pushed into undergoing?
0: I think, you know, the thing that got me discovered was that as I was getting older, I was getting a little more, I was hiding a little bit less. And by this point, like now I'm 18, I have an older girlfriend. She's definitely not a high school student. And I think my parents are kind of like, who is this strange person that you're bringing around the house? And why does she look like not like any peer that you would ever have Like, who are what is going on here? And they started to get curious. And this was like the internet was still new. And the we were I was in AOL chat rooms at that time.
1: (laughs) I knew that was gonna. I knew AOL chat was gonna come up.
0: Of course it came up. And so like I was in some AOL chat rooms where I was just like able to finally speak openly about like with other gay people about what is this like and tell me about your life and this is my life. And my parents, you know, they, they did search around on my computer and they found some of that stuff and they found some of the websites that I had bookmarked where I was just getting more information and things like that. So anyways, it was they made their discovery. I didn't know they had discovered any of this, but there was this moment where they invited me into the kitchen and you know, it was that like, we need to have a talk. We need to ask you a question. We need to have a talk with you. Like I had such a pit in my stomach at this moment because up until this point, I really was the good kid. Like I didn't, I wasn't the, I wasn't a partier. I wasn't doing a lot of drugs or drinking or anything like that. I, I made good grades. I was a good athlete. Like I was a, I went to church. Like all these things about me, I was the quote good kid. And so this was really the first time in my life where I could feel that pit in my stomach of like, I think I'm in trouble. Like I think something negative is happening to me right now. This is really weird, and and it felt terrible. And so I felt that pit. And, and I sit down at the kitchen table with them. And, uh, you know, I remember my mom saying something like, um, you know, Erica, we need to ask you a question. And my memory of this is she said something like, are you a homosexual? <laughs> and even that word, I mean, I'm like, okay, <laughs> that's such an odd. Like, I don't think I had ever used that word to describe myself. But that was a that's the word that I guess the technical term that they wanted to use at that time and the part that's the most memorable for me is that I paused in that moment like I didn't know how to answer that question and I was kind of I was actually kind of searching for their approval like I was kind of looking feeling them out to see are they gonna approve of this like are they asking me because they really want to know or are they asking me because I'm in trouble (laughs) it was that question So I'm in the silence and I'm kind of reading their expression. I'm reading their energy. And my dad says something really kind of open. He says, you know, Erica, if you are, we need to talk. We need to know so we can talk about this. And I'm like, hmm, that sounded maybe possibly opening. Let me let me see where this goes. And like instantly, before I could even open my mouth to answer, my mom swoops in and she goes, "Rick, what are you talking about? If she is, we're sending her off to Houston to live with Aunt Marcy. We got to get her out of here. We got to we got to get her out of these influences." And I'm like, oh, <laughs> okay. I think her assumption was I was being corrupted by bad influences here where I was living. And so the best remedy would be to get me out of here and to another place where these influences, you know, like I'll leave the gay behind. (laughs) And when I go to Houston to live with Aunt Marcy, I will be, uh, you know, those influences won't be around me and therefore I'll be back to being straight.
1: So how did the, would you mind walking me along the path of how your parents decided to send you to conversion therapy?
0: Totally. Yeah. So, so the way I answered the question, because at this point it's pretty clear to me that they're not accepting but I don't feel like I can outright lie. So I don't I don't say no, I'm not, but I also don't feel comfortable owning it either because I don't know what's going to happen to me and I'm terrified. So I kind of give this really obscure, ambigu- ambiguous answer, right? Ambiguous answer. And I say, mm, I'm not really sure. I'm kind of struggling with this and, try- and I'm confused and I'm trying to figure it out, right? Like that was my answer. And so the next step was we need to go talk to the church. We need to go to the church and we need to uh, discuss this with the pastor. That's just what you do in in these communities when there's any kind of confusion or any kind of like you know possibly contentious situations. So we go into the church. We have a meeting set up with the pastor, and the pastor makes it really clear from his perspective, from his spiritual leadership perspective that this is really not in alignment with what God wants for me in my life. And and this was not his plan, and I'm out of line. And, you know, because I'm such a good kid, why would I want that? Like, you know, I sh- I'm i not the kind of kid who would make choices like this, and I need to, you know, get back in line. This, this I've been confused. Um, they even kind of told me, like, because I would say something like, but this is how I feel. Like, I know how I feel, and this is how I feel. And, you know, they would say things like, the pastor would say something like, Well, Satan has a way of manipulating you and Satan can get his hands on your feelings and he's got your feelings corrupted so you can't trust yourself. And, you know, I talk about this in my book because that was a big harmful piece for me is teaching me or programming me to believe that I can't trust myself at all. Taking that away, like we have this inside of us, our own inner truth. and if something or someone causes that to go offline or causes us to question that, that's super deep harm because like we need that. That's part of how we make decisions in the world. (laughs) So yeah, so that was already kind of put in me of stop trusting yourself, you're confused, you need to start trusting us and listening to what we're saying to you. And they they told me that there was this program that was happening nearby. It was not quite in my town, but it was kind of nearby and it wasn't run, run by my church, it was run by another organization And several people from different churches were all part of it. I was supposed to go, they called it counseling. I was supposed to go to this special counseling. And what I remember about it is that we would have group counseling components to it where we would all be together in a room. And, you know, even though this is in the movies and it seems so stereotypical, it was true. There was a very gay woman and a very gay man running the program and they were married to each other. And they were the proof that if, you know, if they could do this, if they could turn from that sinful past and get married to each other and turn their lives to God, that all of us could too. And they were the model. And then we would have these private sessions, one-on-one counseling sessions with counselors who were there in the space. And I don't remember a ton about the counseling. I know I didn't go through the physical abuse that a lot of people go through, like you've seen in the movies, shock therapy and... You know, very, like, beatings and other harmful things, like where they try to beat the demons out of you. I didn't endure any of that. All of mine was psychological and emotional. It was a lot of just trying to twist things around in my mind. And so a lot of the questions they would ask me would be just trying to find areas where something wasn't working in my life. Like, if I was sad about something, or depressed, or angry, or any of these emotions that, a, a psychiatrist would tell you our normal teenage development emotions. The context they would put on them was, well, that's evidence. Like, if you were living the way God wanted you to live, this wouldn't be happening to you. You wouldn't be feeling this way. You wouldn't be experiencing this. Like, clearly, you're out of line. That not this obvious to you? Wake up. You're out of line here. What was your kind of reaction
1: to this? Cause I know you're like one of the smartest kids in your class. Did you, did you question it? Did you resent it? Or were you like accepting it? What, what, tell me about that kind of like reaction to the, the, to the conversion
0: therapy. This is really important because I learned something big about myself in this moment. I didn't notice it till later, but it came out here. Even though I'm very mentally strong, emotionally my emotions dominate and i didn't know that about myself i actually thought my emotions were insignificant and and mentally you know is where i where i live from but the emotions of this like having everyone so upset about this weighed on me so heavily that i wasn't thinking logically about this anymore it was more of like i just knew my mom was so upset and she was she was stressed and she was anxious and, you know, I can put myself in her shoes. In her mind and her, with her ideology at that time, she was afraid that I was going to hell. And as a mother, that's the last thing you want for your kid if you believe that that's a, that's a thing. If you believe that ideology, that's the last thing you ever want. So she was basically in a panic. She was in a panic. She thought she was fighting for my life here and my eternal life. And so I, I see her being just distraught and, and in terror Um, You know, my my it's affecting my dad. It's affecting my sister, not to mention all of these people at my church who I now have, you know, 15, 20 year relationships with um, who I've known forever who are like mentors to me. They're all concerned about me. So I kind of like the way I handled this was I took my mental anything I thought I knew offline and I just basically caved and said, if it matters this much to these people, maybe I am confused. Maybe I'm misled. Maybe they're right. Up until that point, I had not abandoned myself, but it was then that I actually became the one who abandoned myself. Like They had kind of all abandoned me, but I was still with myself. But as soon as I decided, okay, it's more important for me to be who they want me to be than to be who I really am, that's when I abandoned myself. And I think a lot of the harm came from that, from me letting myself down and abandoning myself and leaving myself than even what, what they did from the outside.
1: I would imagine too that it's possible that if you agree to their whatever they're trying to do then at least you get to graduate the conversion therapy and it's it's all over, right?
0: Yeah, it's all over, all the tension goes away, everybody's happy, I'm no longer in the negative spotlight, I'm no longer the bad kid like it all goes away. It's like it's like this little carrot on a on a, you know, on a string for you. If you just take this one carrot, all of this goes away. And I'm like I don't know. I, I guess I need all this to go away because it's too much. It felt overwhelming. It really did feel overwhelming. And I wanted it to go away at that point.
1: How long was the, the therapy? Like, how long did you have to go to it for?
0: So I don't think I was in there that that long um, because I was graduating high school fairly soon around this point and going off to college. So I actually don't remember how long. Um, I know it was not it was not residential. Like I would go weekly to this thing, but I'm not sure how many sessions it took for me to cave. <laughs> Knowing me, it might not have taken very many for me to cave because, like I said, like guilt and shame and blame and all of those negative emotions, they're they're very effective on me. <laughs> but I also had a lot of it at that time, like and still like I don't I'm not good at things in my body that don't feel true. And so when it's not like I was just going to I wasn't able to just lie to them and say, I'm going to tell them I'm straight, but I'm still going to be gay. Like I felt like for me to say that I'm going to be straight I really had I get I had to get there for myself. Like I had to really believe that that I wanted that. And that's I mean, it was really painful. I had to break up with a girlfriend who I really liked. And it really hurt her a lot. um, Because she didn't see that coming anywhere. There was no indication that was going to happen. And I do remember like I have this very strong memory of myself in my bedroom packing for college and just crying really, like really sad and upset because it felt like I was having to lose a piece of myself. Like really, like di- like let die a piece of myself. And I was in such grief over that. And my mom came into my room and she's like, what's going on? Why are you crying? And I said, if, if Jesus could sacrifice his life for me, then this is a sacrifice I can make for Jesus. I was all in. I bought that. I bought that 100% and I I decided like, okay, I can do this. I'm strong enough. I can go off to college and I can be straight.
1: In your book, you write that more than 700,000 adults in the United States have received conversion therapy and about half of that number have received it before age 18. What's the state of conversion therapy in the U.S. today? Is it legal for minors in all states?
0: It is not legal in all states. So right now it's state by state. It's on a state by state basis. And there are a lot of states who have taken it all the way to their either Supreme Court or or to their ballots and have banned it. I believe the number is at 17 states right now have banned it. Um, But that number is always changing. And, you know, it's 2022 right now. And we've just had a big wave of anti LGBTQ legislation coming through in a lot of states. So some states have now repealed some of those. It just it's, it's a moving target, depending on who's in power and what the issues are at the time. But it is not it is by no means banned across our country at all. It's still happening.
1: Another statistic that you cite in your book that I really appreciated was that more than 1.8 million LGBTQ youth in the United States seriously consider suicide and few practices harm you more than attempts to change sexual preference or gender identity. So just asking you, like, how can we assist young people who are either denied gender affirming care or they have their sexuality repressed?
0: Yeah, this is real. I mean, and I, and I, because I've walked through it, like I know those dark moments. I know when like, that moment when I abandoned myself and I looked around at every person in my life and knew that they needed me to be something that isn't who I am. Like, in that moment, I you really are faced with, like, then what's the point of being here? If I can't be me, do I even want to be? Like, I can't – can I live a lie the rest of my life? I mean, it's – it's kind of crazy and so I totally understand the, the dilemma and I understand why youth would want to leave here. And so I think it is important. I mean, the same statistics that the same studies that have found those statistics, there's a great center out of San Francisco State University. It's called the Family Research Council, I think it is or the there's a there's a center out of there and they do research on this particular topic. And they have found that having one affirming adult in a kid's life can make a difference between, you know, them choosing to completely leave or not. Now, I will say from my own experience that I had, I was eventually able to find one affirming adult, and that was the parent of one of my girlfriends who herself had come out as a lesbian. So she was, she had a, she had a wife and I was dating her daughter. And so me being able to see her and her wife was so affirming to me just to know that like, here's an adult who is living this way and has no issue with it and is happy. That one adult even just gave me a little bit of the power to normalize this for myself at that time, but not having my own mother's acceptance was crushing. And it it those are not comparable. Like it's not like this one adult outweighed or even equally weighed my parent my mother. So, I do still say that like the best case scenario is that mothers will accept their kids because if if a mother can accept this, everything else gets easier. But with, without that motherly, like there is some bond that gets formed there. And without that mother's acceptance, it's like, I felt in that moment, I could have had the acceptance of the entire world. And it didn't even matter that much because I didn't have her acceptance.
1: Yeah. You also write about that Dr. Dan Siegel states that dissociation often occurs when a parent is the source of trauma. Did you experience dissociation? And if you did, what was the effect of that in terms of you accessing your emotions down the road?
0: Oh, my gosh. Yeah, this is mainly what my book is about. My book is less about my story of coming out and going through conversion therapy. And the focus really is on the 20 year journey after that of discovering all of the long term implications of going through something like this and how I kind of started healing those piece by piece. And so, yeah, the biggest realization that I had around this was that one of my coping strategies was was to dissociate. It was basically what was most approved of at the time. My mental prowess was most most approved, like there was no conflict. If I was smart, everyone was happy. My parents were happy. You know, but if I was if I got into my emotions at all, now there's conflict right now, what I feel is different than what they're feeling. And it just was not a safe place to be. My emotions were not safe at that time. They were leading me astray. They were getting me into all of these rejecting situations. So my choice was and my survival strategy was to repress my emotions and to really lean heavily into my mental state. I became an engineer. I went off to to college and studied engineering. I tried to logic my way through everything and rationalize my way through everything. And when it came to emotions, those felt scary and out of control and unpredictable and like they're just going to get me in trouble. That's really how they felt.
1: You write about going off to Austin for college. Lucky for you, you went to probably a place in Texas that's most queer affirming.
0: Yeah, I think had my parents known that, they probably would not have let me go there. But thankfully, nobody put that together. And here I was off to UT Austin.
1: How long did it take before you had a girlfriend?
0: so I did give it a full try like I even identified a boy in my in my college freshman engineering 101 class I'm like okay this is the guy this is the guy I'm gonna try to date and I can do this and so it's not like the minute I got there I was like woohoo I'm gay it was it was like no I made a commitment I made a promise like I'm gonna try to do this thing I started going to a church that was there and really getting involved in a youth group and, and just trying to stay away from all of all of that stuff of my who I was. And I started trying to go to like frat parties and trying to be like what all the other straight girls would do and there was one time, the one time I kissed this guy, we both threw up. He threw up because he was drunk because he had just come from a party and I threw up because it just felt so incredibly wrong in my body. And you know, the thing that I think saved me honestly is that I was walking down the main street in Austin and I saw a church and that church had a gay flag outside of it. And it was the first time ever that I saw those two things could be compatible or could coexist. And like, I was, I was frozen. I was like, I was like, my jaw was on the ground. I could not believe that this church had a gay flag outside. I didn't even know how this was possible. So I went inside, I made an appointment with the pastor I asked some questions. I'm like, you know, I just went through a very extensive therapy telling me that these two things can't exist and you have to pick one or the other. And how how is this possible? Like how do you see this that this is possible? And his answer, and I say this in my book, his answer was not super affirming. It wasn't like he said, "Oh yeah, God loves gay people." He didn't say that. What he said was, "Well, we just don't know. We're not really sure. It's not really clear." Jesus didn't really talk about it. A few of the other disciples mentioned it. The Old Testament talked. Like, so he was basically like, we don't know. And since we don't know, we would rather err on the side of love than hate. And we would like to include more people. And if we can be more inclusive and if gay people feel comfortable coming here, then maybe they'll develop their own relationship with God and they they can figure it out with God directly.
1: Okay, so he really, like, gave you the minimum.
0: He even said, I'm so out and on a limb even having this conversation with you. Like, where i come from my my lineage is i'm like i almost got kicked out of seminary for the views that i have about this so he already felt like he was on such a progressive edge of of religion now this was you know late 90s early 2000s so at that time i think he was on the edge he was on the progressive edge thankfully 2022 so many more churches have decided that this maybe was a mistake <laughs> on their part and that they might not have understood what God was really meant, meant, meaning about this issue. But I digress. So I saw this flag. I had this conversation and what dawned on me in that moment was not like, okay, the church permits this. What dawned on me in this moment is I have given away all of my power and decision-making to other people who don't really know. They don't really know. And they had, they had given me the impression that they knew that they knew very clearly what God thinks and what God wants. And I should listen to them because they're the experts and I'm not. And it was in this moment where this pastor is sharing with me that he doesn't know. He prays constantly and he doesn't know. And I'm like, well, then I know as much as you know. <laughs> I mean, my relationship with, with God is just as, as valid as yours is. And so maybe I need to go directly to the source for these questions rather than trying to go through these people.
1: You write a lot about repairing the identity harm yes. that you suffered due to taking part against your will in conversion therapy. Let's talk a little bit about identity harm, how it manifested in your life.
0: When this word came in as I was writing the book, like I do feel like this word like, is one of the things that channeled through. I was so excited by this term identity harm because it, it really sums up the way this works. This is not just a gay issue either. Identity harm isn't just something that, that the LGBTQ community experiences. I have started realizing as I talk to more people about this book, that identity harm can happen to anyone. And the way I define it is basically somebody from the outside, and it could be a person, it could be culture, it could be an institution, somebody from outside of us tells us messages about ourselves that are not actually true. And it may be like, you're not smart enough to be a lawyer, right? You know, maybe your dad said that to you. It may be, oh, you're too fat to, to be on that swing, right? So like, kid on the playground, Um, It may be, you know, that there's something wrong with you for being gay, right? Like all of these messages. And the way the harm happens is the extent to which we take those messages in and actually believe them and internalize them. Because, you know, like there's some things that can happen. Somebody can make an insult to you and you're like, that's ridiculous and you move on. No big deal. No harm done. But there are certain insults that happen to us where we actually take them in and we start to wonder like wow, is there actually something wrong with me? Am I actually broken? And the identity harm and the way I define it is is when that becomes your new truth. So my new truth became deep down, there's something wrong with me. And so now when I look at my identity, I look at it through the lens of, yeah, but deep down there's something wrong with me. And now I'm the one carrying that identity around. Even if I go now to the most liberal, gay affirming place in the country, even if I go to Provincetown or San Francisco, I've carried with me but deep down there's something wrong with me. And so I, you know, in my book talks a lot about this, all the ways that then I behave based on that belief or that premise that there's something wrong with me.
1: One thing that I found really interesting was when you kind of examined your own experience, how you went through a string of broken relationships in adulthood.
0: Yeah, totally. For me, that's one of the key places they showed up. I mean, it was the hardest part was my relationship with my mom in the trauma and so, relationships have always been a fundamental guiding principle in my life. Like relationships are important to me. Love, like I'm a lover. Love is important to me. I don't think it shows up for everyone that way. Um, in fact, when I'm counseling people, sometimes I'll say, you know, for you it might be career. Like it may be that you were, you can't figure out what you want to do in the world, and nothing really satisfies you from a career perspective. But for me, relationships were the place where all of this showed up and manifested. And what I started noticing, and I didn't notice at the time, but what I started doing was drawing to myself people that I thought would understand me get me not reject me be able to love me but in order to earn that love what I had learned earlier was oh I need to conform myself to what they want me to be right like that was the message I got at 18 was be who you be who we want you to be and we will love you and i I I did that I tried to be who they wanted me to be and so I carried that with me and so now from this point on in relationships it was like okay well let me just if there's ever any kind of a conflict or anything let me just bend to what they need and the problem is like that's not sustainable and I didn't know that at the time. I thought that made me a really good partner. Like, oh, look how great of a partner I am. I bend to what my partners need and I'm so caring and so loving and I do what they need. But what it ended up doing was creating resentment in me because those weren't the decisions I wanted to be making and they weren't what was best for me. They were, they were complete me giving myself away or abandoning myself to please other people. And so at some point, I'd hit this wall in the relationship where I'd say, like, this is ridiculous. I'm being treated terribly. I have to get out of here. And I would leave that relationship. And, you know, and then I would just blame them. Like, oh, they're, you know, they're not the right person. I should move on and keep, keep trying to find the right person. Not realizing that it was really all my pattern all along of not, not just honoring myself in the relationship and therefore not being able to sustain the relationship.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. I have not made that connection before between the serial monogamy and the identity harm, but I think that's really, really profound. You also bring up codependence. Now, is this kind of on a similar tip, or is there is there something different to tease out there?
0: Yeah, I think it's all similar. Like I have this little quiz in the book, which which propose, which poses a few scenarios. Um, people pleasing is another one. So people pleasing, codependency, like this kind of just any time that you don't feel safe to express yourself or who you are and that can look like codependency where you know i won't say what my truth is because i'm really dependent on this person loving me and i'm really dependent on the safety of this relationship and so i'm not going to express my needs and then people pleasing is another is kind of another angle of that coin of right you know like i I don't want this person to be upset with me. I know what it feels like when people are upset with me. It feels awful. And so I want to avoid that at any cost. So let me just please them. And all of these situations, unfortunately, come at a cost to us because like that's not who we are. Like anytime we compromise who we are to please someone else, it comes at a cost.
1: Well, it sounds like you're in like an awesome relationship right now with your partner. And I'm just sort of curious, what kind of reparation work did you need to make with yourself in order to show up fully in a relationship where you can have that give and take?
0: Up until this relationship, before this, most of the relationships were me trying to find someone to fill a hole that I felt inside of myself, like, a, like this, this, this cavity inside of myself. And I really f- believed at that time I could have that filled by somebody else from outside of me. And so, therefore, I was really pursuing somebody who I thought was the perfect match for this hole that I had. And it finally took a really failed relationship for me to realize I have to be the one who fills this hole for myself. And until I do that, it's impossible. It's not even fair for me to try to ask another person to complete that void in myself. That's my void, that's my hole. And, you know, it's it isn't something another person can fill for me. And so that was the work I had to do, was I had to get clear on the pattern of what I was doing and why I was doing it. Like, like really sit with the pain of that emptiness and, and where that was coming from and deal with some of the old emotions that of being rejected, abandon, all of those feelings that I had been not wanting to feel from my past and get to a point where I felt so good with me in myself that I was complete now. Like, I... That hole is something that I was able to fill between me and, you know, God, source, spirit, whatever, like my own, my own self and, and higher self. That's really when I was then able to show up for another person and see them for who they are and not need them to be something for me. And so it was a, it's a whole different way to enter a relationship. Entering a relationship where you can honor another person for who they are and you don't need something, you don't need them to be something for you. Is is a completely different way that I, than I had ever entered a relationship before, and I think that was a game changer for me.
1: <laughs> what about writing this book? Like, uh, has this been a healing process for you as well?
0: Yeah. Oh my gosh, so healing. I had no intention of writing this book. Um, I was working in finance when I wrote this book. <laughs> um, I did. I had just finished a seminary program, so I had done a two year interfaith seminary program because I was feeling some kind of a spiritual calling, but I was terrified for the reasons I just said. Like, I was so terrified to step into spiritual leadership because I felt like my mom's not going to approve of this. Like, my spiritual leadership's going to look very different than hers, and she's not going to approve, and why would I want to bring that pain on myself? Let me, you know, let me just stay small here. But because of going through that process, I got a lot of the healing. I got a lot of the religious healing that I needed. I got affirmed as I am, exactly as I am, as a spiritual leader. Like, Others in my community saw me that way, and I was able to step into that identity. And that helped me then be able to do some of the repair work enough to write this book. Like, writing the book itself was healing. Me sharing my story was healing. And I had to confront that fear that my mom's gonna read this book, and I'm gonna be speaking about this out in the world. And is she gonna approve? Is she not gonna approve? What's gonna happen? But writing it was was just like being able to collect my thoughts in this way and get the story out in this way was, was very healing for me to connect some dots and put some pieces together. It's tricky because you, you out yourself in the public, but then you're also locked into a moment in time. Because like, as a speaker, I get to adjust my talk every time I give it to stay relevant and current, right? But as an author, what I wrote is what I wrote. And it's it was me in that snapshot in time. Um, I've heard a lot of authors say, you know, wait till you read your book in 10 years, you're going to be like, you're going to laugh and be a little bit humiliated that you thought some of those things or said some of those things at that time. And I have no regrets. I mean, ask me in 10 years, but I have no regrets because I, I really do feel like that is that was me to that moment. And I've already since the book has been published, I feel like I've already grown like my relationship with my mom has actually shifted since I wrote the book. Here's what happened with that. You know, I was very curious, would my mom read it? And would it upset her if she did read it? I did a lot of healing work with that relationship on my own, not with her. Like we didn't go to counseling together. It was me doing work inside myself on that relationship. There were two things that were most healing for me. One is this just happened, but I was listening to a song, a song by Karen Drucker. And it's called, it's not her song, but she sings it. It's called, How Could Anyone Ever Tell You? And the lyrics of the song are, How could anyone ever tell you you are anything less than beautiful? How could anyone ever tell you you are less than whole? How could anyone fail to notice that your loving is a miracle? How deeply you're connected to my soul. The first time I heard this song, I started weeping. And I didn't understand why. I'm like, what's going on here? And something inside of me said, just sit for a second. Just be with this song. Let Be with these emotions that are coming up. Just be. And so I did, and I laid on the bed, and I just let the song repeat over and over. And I was weeping and sobbing and, and really just feeling like, yeah, I was made to feel like who I am is not beautiful. Who I am is not, my love is not okay. It's not a miracle, there's something wrong with it. And and, And as I'm laying on the bed hearing these words, I see in my mind's eye this circle of like angels. It's basically a circle of angels. And I'm in the middle of it. And I feel like this was some shamanic healing that kind of happened to me, speaking of mystical experiences. And I'm now face to face with with each of these beings, and they are singing the words of this song to me as I'm cycling through the circle. And then the whole vision I have ends with me face to face with my mom. And she sings these words to me, which felt so healing. And then I went to sing them back to her, and she shifted from being an adult to being her little child, her own little child and in that moment i realized oh my gosh when she was a kid she heard these words that who she was wasn't beautiful and who she was was not okay and not whole and her love was not good enough and it's like at that moment some of the anger and some of the resentment of like how could you went completely away because it was like oh you you had this happen to you not because you were gay but just in your own way you felt how i feel it felt like a healing on some cosmic plane that was not three-dimensional <laughs> and that was huge and so i went from that with a little bit more softness in my heart to, towards my mom and then the last thing i did my strategy number two was writing a letter and i wrote a letter to myself from her but when i wrote it, it wasn't just from her it was from her highest self like the part in her that i knew on some deep level sees me for who I am, and and recognizes me and loves me for exactly who I am. Even if her three-dimensional self can't get there because of her ideology, there is a part of her that knows. And that's who I needed the letter to come from. So I wrote myself a letter of all the things I ever wanted to hear from her, from that person, from that being, from that part of herself. And I read them to myself, and I cried, and I did a ritual, and all of this stuff. And I let go. I released this. And I released my attachment to needing her to get me which I had been holding onto so strong. Like all I ever wanted was eventually for her to really see me and get me. But by writing that letter, I let it go. I released it to the universe and said, you know, this lifetime, she may never get any further than she is. And this letter may be the best I ever get from her on this plane of existence. And something about letting go in that way, I feel like something shifted. About a year, no, not even a year, about a month after I published my book, about a month after I published my book, and this is not in the book because... The book was already written at this time. She writes me an email. It's the day after my birthday. She writes me an email and she says, uh, the email says way overdue as the subject line. And she goes on to basically apologize and say all the things that I, like a lot of the things that were in that letter I wrote to myself are in there. Um, A lot of the things that are in my book, surprisingly, are in this letter. So that's how I knew she read my book because she said a lot of the things that I had said in my book. I wish she had said these things. Um, you know, she wished she had been able to support me in that time. So it was like an apology and an affirmation at the same time.
1: That's really inspiring. Beautiful.
0: I I was very lucky. Like that doesn't happen for everyone. And some relationships don't get to have that level of repair, but I'm so grateful that mine did. And I think it had something to do with the work I did in me to release like, like the vision I had after I got that letter, that email, after I got the email, I had this little vision in my head of like me with a cat. And I'm like, what is this vision? And it was like when I was a kid, we were taught that if the cat peed on the rug, you have to rub the cat's face in it, face in it so they don't do it again. And the vision I had was me holding my mom's face in the rug and, and rubbing her face in it. And what that meant to me was for 20 years, I've been holding her down and saying, you will be sorry for what you did. You will understand how you hurt me. Like, you will get this. And I just was holding her there and holding her there and wasn't letting her go And when I wrote the letter to myself and released her, it's like I released myself to come to current present day and to grow up and be an adult, like from being a teenager. And I released her from how I had her held like that so she could come into present day and she could express to me how she feels now in this moment rather than being stuck with how I was seeing her from 20 years ago. Let's talk a
1: little bit about you as a minister. I think it's inspiring that, sorry, not minister, reverend.
0: Minister's good and reverend's good, either one.
1: I just think it's inspiring that you were drawn to become a reverend when some might say that the church is the site of this originary trauma and just wanted to find out, you know, what's your practice like? What, what is your gift when it comes to being a person of spirituality?
0: I mean, thankfully for me, I never I never took my anger all the way to, quote, God. <laughs> like, for me, it never really felt like at a deep level I was being rejected by God, it actually always felt like people were just con- misunderstanding this thing. So I know that's not true for all gay people, and a lot of gay people are, are really mad at God, and I understand that, and I don't, wouldn't want to force anybody into a healing that they're not ready for. But for me personally, I was just looking for an outlet for my own spirituality that was authentic for me. And when I found this particular seminary program uh, where a third of my class was queer— and um, most of the spirit, most of the leaders and teachers that they brought in as guest speakers were queer. It was so affirming for me to be able to see myself in that way. And it's, it's funny, if there's any queer people listening to this, you might, re- you might recognize or, or resonate with this. I often find myself as the only queer person in spiritual spaces, because <laughs> there's just not a lot of us. And then I find myself as the only spiritual person in queer spaces. So it's like, neither way do I fit really in those. And so being able to bring these things together was really important to me.
1: When you are confronted with ignorance and bias in the church about attitudes towards sexuality, how do you find it best to frame Christ consciousness, the the kindness and loving of all God's children in this meaningful and tangible way that has the potential to help people and change hearts and minds?
0: Yeah, this is a tricky one for me. Um, you know, there are some queer people who do that work where they will go head to head with the misunderstandings, misinterpretations of the Bible. There, there are amazing movies about this. There's one coming out called 1946, I think it is. And, and it's all about how that, the word homosexuality wasn't even in the Bible until the 40s. That's a new word to even enter the Bible. So there are people doing this. I, for myself, I still find it a little triggering. And so, like, even just recently, I was on a speaking circuit, and one of the co- speaking colleagues I was there with was really struggling with my talk because she's like, look, I'm a person of faith, and I don't agree with what you're saying. And, you know, she was really coming at me with respect and openness and saying, you know, can can you teach me? Like, can you can I talk to you about how you see this because I see it differently? And in that moment, I found myself basically... Saying, I don't think I can. I don't think I want to. <laughs> like, it's too raw. Ro- like, it's still too painful for me to even have those conversations. Um, because I don't even, I'm not even open to, like, like hearing their perspective. Even though I know it's open to change, still feels painful. Yeah. So, what I do in those situations is I call in allies. And there was another speaking colleague that I had who uh, is also a man of faith, a man of the church. But he sees the issue the way I see He sees it differently. He sees that being gay is not at all incompatible with being Christian. In this case, it was Christianity. And so he, um, he, I said, you know, would you mind speaking to her for me? Because I don't think I can do it. I need an ally in this moment. And he said, I'd be happy to. And, and they had a conversation. And he did it on my behalf. And he, he broke down the passages that she was struggling with and gave the alternate interpretations and helped. And I didn't have to be a part of that, which would have been a little too traumatic for me, I think.
1: Mm, mm. Well, what do you hope that conversations about you as an author and minister and more will entail if in 25 years we're, as a society, to move towards a a truly more diverse and inclusive space?
0: Mm, That's an interesting question. I mean, I think my platform, I have a couple of messages that I really want to get out there in the world. Um, One of them is for the queer community specifically. I, I, see this, I see this time as really interesting for the queer community. I actually think we're meant to step up as leaders right now. Like, if you look around, so many systems and structures are collapsing. Like, a lot of how we based our identity is starting to break down. even the people who have been on top for so long, right? Like, patriarchy is breaking down, heteronormativity is breaking down, everything's breaking down, right? The issue is when things break down like that, if your identity has been attached to it, it is so scary. It feels like dying. Well, the the queer people know this. We've already been through it. Like, I already had heteronormity break down for me in the church 20 plus years ago. So I've already been down that scary, lonely path of like, oh my gosh, am I gonna die? Who am I now? I'm alone all of these things who am I and I was able to come through that and come out the other side knowing myself so deeply I think it's a gift because when I look around at the world I don't think a lot of people do know themselves very deeply I think a lot of us I create our identity based on what we're told or what society tells us and how we're programmed and how we're marketed to and how we're conditioned and because I was forced to in a way I have had to get to know myself so deeply, and now I think we can lead others. Because as all of these systems collapse, everyone's going to have to go on that journey. My parents have to go on that journey as their as their systems of belief and and sustain and sus, like like uh, structure and and um and safety collapse. And so I think we can lead people. We can say, "Look, it's going to be scary." But you're not going to die. Take this as an opportunity to get to know yourself more deeply. Who are you really? What do you really value? What do you, what really matters to you? And what's really true for you in your heart? And we queer people get to point people to that place and say, ask that question. Go deep, go there. It's not, you can do it. You can come through the other side even stronger. So when I say we're supposed to be leaders, I think this is why, because I think everyone on the planet is about to go through or is going through this level of identity crisis, I guess, or identity exploration, and we're the models of uh, what's possible.
1: I love how you frame that. That is just so smart, so so brilliant, really. It seems like every day a new bill comes out in Florida or Texas that's repressive towards LGBTQ folks in dangerous, frightening ways. And honestly, it leaves me feeling frozen. And you'd think that that you'd be like, no, I want to help queer teenagers who are struggling with their identity. You're talking about helping folks who are clinging to their identity and, and being injurious to others.
0: That's exactly it. It's not lost on me that the hand I might be reaching back to hold might be the persecutors themselves. And I do think the fear is universal. like The fear that they are feeling as they're gripping to their last strands of you know like what they know right security and you know power and control and all of those things that have kept them feeling safe as those start to slip away right through their fingers their if their fear is the same fear that I was experiencing when I was trying to figure out who I was and being told it wasn't okay to be who I was so it's not the same context but the fear the baseline fear that they're feeling being afraid of who they are like who am I is the same fear. And so I, I do think if, and, it, and think how much better the world is going to be like, people will start harming, stop harming each other. If we all just knew who we were and we're comfortable with that.
1: How would you say we might reach our collective human potential inclusive of sexual identity and preference? Where, what do we need to do as a society to get there?
0: To be potential is synonymous with truly ourselves. Like our potential is to is to be our our fullest version of ourselves shine our fullest unique light and it is unique and we're all in my belief system all here with something uniquely ours to offer and it's not the same as anyone else's and so to the extent that we try to live someone else's dharma, as they say on the other side of the pond at Kripalu, right? Like as, as much as we try to live someone else's dharma, we're actually doing a disservice to this collective human potential awakening. And so I think one of the ways we get there in the most inclusive way is to acknowledge that everyone's carrying their own piece of this collective. And that it is unique to them and it can't be anyone else's piece. And, and the, the more we try to make ours look like someone else's or impose philosophies that say that everyone should look the same, the more I think we're limiting the human potential, um, not realizing that this collective does come from a massive mosaic of of different perspectives. And
1: Reverend Erica Allison, it's been so amazing to, to talk with you today. I really, really enjoyed it. Can you tell us about your book, Gay the Prey Away, where to find it? And how to keep up with you and, and find out what you're doing?
0: Yeah, totally. I'd love to share a little bit more. So the book is called Gay the Prey Away. It's available at most online book retailers. Um, it's also available. I hope in some local bookstores. I've been trying to get it into local bookstores. So if if you have a local bookstore near you, definitely go in, request it. They should be able to get access to it. Support support your local bookstores. Um, it's also available as an ebook on Amazon on Kindle. And my favorite, as we referenced earlier in this episode, is it's on Audible as well. Um, So it is an audiobook, and you can listen to me read it to you if you'd rather do that. Uh, You can also find me, I'm on social media at Rev Erica Allison, and I do um, probably interact there the most, Instagram and and Facebook. Uh, I'd love to keep in touch with you that way. I will tell you my newest obsession is green juice, green juicing. And so what I'm up to these days is I'm leading retreats for anyone, the queer community or anyone on, uh, we do little juicing retreats. And my rationale for this, to me, it's completely connected to all this work. Like one of the ways identity harm harms us is it gets like these messages, these lies get lodged in ourselves, right? And there's something about doing a green juice detox, a juicing detox, where as we're releasing the physical density, we also can release that mental and emotional and spiritual density and get back to our truth And so that's why I'm really on the train of green juice right now and leading people on retreats that help them get to their clarity and their truth. It's called juicing to clarity.
1: That's beautiful. Well, thank you so much, Erica.
0: Thank you. So fun talking with you today. And I love Esalen and I love the work that the Voices of Esalen podcast is putting out in the world. So I'm just really happy to be a part of this platform.
1: Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's episode was produced in conjunction with Shira Levine. Our music is by Nico Holman. Additional music by Blue Dot Sessions. If you're enjoying the show, please support us by sharing on social media or by going to your favorite podcast player and leaving a review. It really does help. Until next time, be well.